and we're here. Hello. Hello. Hi, all. Welcome. It is special Monday afternoon, generational change. Um, and, it Jen, still, and it is still special. It's not going to be forever. So this is just sort of like a... Yeah, don't get too temporary. used to these afternoons. Yeah, you're getting spoiled right now, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Peter, and welcome to a Monday yeah. afternoon edition of Generational Change. Uh, this is a show that we have been trying to put together for a while because this is a very important topic that we wanted to cover and have been wanting to cover for a while. So Jen, take it away. What are we talking about today? Okay, so today we're going to be talking about the baby formula shortage, but it's really more than that. I, I kind of want people to understand how we ended up in this position, like what the policies are that set us up for this kind of failure. And, you know, like it didn't just happen out of nowhere. And it isn't actually as much of a shortage as it is a distribution crisis. So, like, there's a lot of things involved. So um, I came across our guest, Maureen. Um, I think that it was on RJ Escow's show. She was on somebody's show. I don't remember. I watched them. But anyway, and I'm like, that's the person we need to talk to about the baby formula situation. So um, that's how we that's what we did. We reached out. Her name is Maureen. Mo Tekasik, I think I'm saying that right. And she is a journalist and she is a senior fellow at the American Economic Liberties Project. So welcome to Generational Change. You're muted. I think you may be muted. We all have our tech issues every once in a while. No, it doesn't say you're muted. Can you hear me now? Yes. yes. All right. Well, so much for the headset. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry about that, guys. I hope that there's um, no bad audio. My kids are not here, but my husband is. So um, uh, sorry about that. But yeah, um, getting into the Abbott, um, the, the formula shortage um, caused by Abbott and um, our wonderful uh, federal government, um, a sort of collusion of incompetence and um, and and greed, um, as as is so often the case in um, when when calamities like this occur. Um, I don't know where you would like to start. Well, first, I want to make sure if I pronounced your name right. Oh, sure. Well. Um, it, it, we pronounce it Tasic. Um, that's not how they pronounce it, um, back in the motherlands. Um, uh, the, but the, we, the first K, um, we don't pronounce usually in America. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, um, but yeah. Um, okay. So you. let's start, let's start with where you started when you started looking into this, like what was going on where you said, okay, something is clearly awry with our supply chain situation. Like obviously that there was no formula on the shelves and, and that, but you probably knew what this was before everyone else even noticed that was happening. It's so funny that you should say that because I don't have any connection to, um, to, to baby formula or I had never really looked at Abbott's business, but I do write about monopoly and um, I write about prof private equity. Um, and I saw in those, you know, in, in the baby formula shortage, I saw something that, you know, clearly we had never experienced before anything along these lines. Um, but I had a feeling that it wasn't, you know, a, you know, a, a natural occurrence. There's just usually, um, a, a, 
a contour, like a, a narrative arc that you see in these situations. So really how I got roped into this was I happened to be reading a story on food safety news um, about uh, the uh, FDA inspection and FDA whistleblower report that preceded the shutdown of the Sturgis um, plant. So there's one plant um, owned by Abbott Labs, um, uh, formerly Ross Laboratories, but Abbott uh, acquired Ross a long ago, like in the 80s, possibly the 60s, actually. Um, and there are two, for all intents and purposes, there are two formula makers of work. Uh, baby formula in the United States. Um, they are um, Enfamil. Um, uh, Enfamil's parent is um, a, a, a British conglomerate called Reckitt Benitzer, and um, and uh, Similac's um, parent is Abbott Labs. Um, and um, at the Abbott Labs um, uh, Sturgis, Michigan plant, which is where they um, produced all of the specialty formula. And I think most of their formula, I, I, I have a feeling that that was, um, their highest production, um, uh, baby formula plant. So that was producing, I don't know, say it's producing, um, you know, 20% of the formula in the country. Um, they, um, had severe problems. They were not investing in their, um, in, in uh, upkeep in their plant. They had this problem where their drying machines, um, uh, didn't work properly so that there were, you know, little bits of moisture, um, that could get, um, inside the, um, the powdered formula and, um, contaminate the formula because obviously moisture breeds, uh, microorganisms. Um, so I noticed um, in this um, story, they mentioned um, that the, you know, that the whistleblower um, who had kind of come forward first to OSHA and then the FDA had um, been talking about this for a long time, had been trying to go up the chain and report it to all, you know, deal with this problem internally, um, had really um, chronicled just like a massive litany of systemic failures um, to, to kind of, um, you know, enforce proper safety standards within the plant and was just shot down, demoted, and then ultimately terminated for, you know, being, um, a, a, you know, greasy, uh, what's the word? <laughs> Not a greasy wheel. Um, squeaky uh, wheel. Being a squeaky wheel. And, um, and I, uh, one thing that really caught my eye when I actually looked at the underlying report that, um, that, that this, um, report was based on, um, was that the, um, when they had in the plant mechanical failures, when a piece of equipment was not um, functioning properly, um, there was a policy of blaming in the in the report on on whatever failure had happened of blaming individual workers for for whatever lapse had happened. So they'd had these contaminated batches of formula, and they were blaming them on individual workers, you know, failing to do their jobs correctly. So they're covering up the systemic failure, and I'm thinking. I've seen this before. Um, I've done a lot of work on Boeing um, and totally different company, but um, very similar culture here of just really shortchanging the, um, you know, the, the usual quality control process. Um, and so I thought, you know, hey, what um, I, I bet that this company has spent a lot of money on, on dividends and stock buybacks recently. And lo and behold, um, you know, haven't they spent about I think it's in since the um, the whistleblower first tried to to alert management in 2019 to these problems, and they had this contaminated batch. They've spent like 16 billion dollars on, um, sorry, 15 billion dollars, I believe, on um, stock buybacks and dividends. So that's this is a problem that we have throughout our economy. Is this um, this 
it just, you know, pissing away cash. Um, sorry to Frank, um, pissing away cash for non-productive purposes, um, in order to kind of, you know, line the pockets of shareholders, um, dividends and, um, and stock buybacks. You don't get more kind of unproductive than those. And to me, you know, as just like a, as a, as an observer and not an economist, um, I feel like this is very inefficient for so much money to just be collecting in, in, in shareholder coffers and not, um, uh, contribute to the actual production of, um, of the, you know, the, the, the maintenance of the, the, um, plant, but especially in, um, a, you know, situation where you have two, um, really two suppliers, um, controlling about at least 80% of the supply formula in the country, um, you know, that's what happens. And this is what happens with Boeing. If the customer has nowhere else to go, if they have this very guaranteed spot um, in the, you know, on uh, your CVS shelf um, or your um, grocery store shelf, and um, and nobody's really going to threaten that, and you have this very, very steady source of demand, um, that is the temptation that's always going to be the risk that you run with um, corporate America, especially with that our company is getting more and more financialized is that they just choose to spend, you know, they, they extract however much cash they can from the business and, and invest in it, not at all. Um, so this is, you know, something that, and this is the problem with our regulatory system is that they will, you know, they will inspect these facilities. They will try to make sure, ensure that the safety, you know, that they, they have this checklist of, of, um, you know, little things that they run through to, to, to try and um, ensure that they're, you know, that they're not putting the lives of consumers at risk or the lives of passengers at risk, what have you. Um, but they get, you know, they don't have any actual authority to say, hey, you know, if you like, you know, if you fail one more time, no, no dividends for you. You can't, you can't issue a dividend or, you know, we, I, I, and it's possible that they, honestly, it's possible that they do have the authority to do that or they could, you know, um, they could make their fines so high that that it actually kind of has an, a deterrent effect. Um, but they don't ever look at their jobs that way. Um, they don't ever look at the kind of big picture of what is driving this constant, you know, corner cutting and the, and these um, and and this sort of flagrant um, violation of safety standards. So that's um, what that is what got me into it. I wrote a tweet about their buybacks, and you know, it 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 went. Um, very viral. And then a lot of people started asking me about um, baby formula. And I started looking into it a little bit more. And I started looking into Abbott's business a little bit more. And it seems like Abbott Labs, they have um, a very robust business in, as um, you probably, everybody is um, familiar with the rapid COVID tests. So that's a huge business for them. Um, diabetes test strips, um, that's another really big business line for Abbott. And then they have a lot of cardiovascular um, medical devices. That's something that I know a little bit less about. They acquired um, a company called St. Jude Medical a couple of years ago. Um, and they um, so they really control that business. And their business is incredibly profitable um, on their um, those rapid tests. Um, you know, they made I think that they sold something like six and a half billion dollars worth of those last year. So, um, but what they're really good at is sort of ensuring that they are a, you know, one, you know, either the dominant supplier or one of two dominant suppliers of 
basic things that people need that they buy over the counter in drugstores. Um, and they have, you know, figured it out this way. And in, in, with baby formula, this is, um, this was a, you know, this has been a long time coming. There's a program created by the Nixon administration, um, women, infants, and children. Um, it's a, it's a supplemental nutrition program, um, that helps, um, low income women with children with, um, you know, certain kinds of, uh, grocery, uh, needs. So they've got, um, uh, a, a real lock in, in these programs are administered by states and most states give a monopoly, um, in, uh, to one of the two, um, formula producers. Um, so basically they give these vouchers out to, um, low-income women who need baby formula um, that allow them to obtain free formula. Um, but it wait, 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 I'm sorry. I have to just ask you this. So some states, the, the, of states that are, you know, they, every state has their version of WIC, right? Like every right. state is coming out. So they're, you're saying that all states are contracted with one or two, like one of two um, specific companies. And I just wanted to back up just once. I, I like, why are we in this situation where there's only one American company that's making formula and yet the European company that's making formula can't be helping with our situation here? Like, that's what I understand. Like, why do we have one company here that's doing that? So that when their plant sucks, that there's like, the, it just doesn't make sense that we're set up this way. Yeah, it, it doesn't, it, you have to sort of, so like the, the basic reason is um, I think that, you know, reduce uh, antitrust um, enforcement, right? But with in baby formula, you get, you've had this situation for a really long time. It's been Enfamil and Similac since time immemorial. Uh, Nestle used to be a really large player in um, the baby formula business. And interestingly, in the 1970s, Nestle uh, got into a lot of trouble um, for its marketing of infant formula in third world countries um, where there was no, you know, um, there wasn't a a safe water supply. Um, There was no reason for women to be feeding their, um, you know, buying formula for their children. It was um, really a humanitarian crisis. And um, for some reason, Nestle got in trouble for... um, for doing this, for, for imposing, um, baby formula as a sort of, um, aspirational lifestyle choice, um, in the third world. And the other formula makers didn't really get in trouble. I think that they were not as aggressive about marketing because they called themselves ethical, um, ethical, uh, I, I forget what, like ethical, sellers of infant, you know, of infant supplies or something like that. But that their entire marketing um, strategy was based on sending detail men to doctor's offices, pediatrician's offices, um, labor and delivery um, wards in in hospitals and um, marketing their uh, uh, their infant formula through those channels and not actually advertising, not um, putting up billboards. So they and, and this was, you know, this is this is this is how drug marketing happened for, you know, for, for years and years. And, um, and it's how kind of they sort of, um, insinuated themselves into our healthcare system. Um, so Similac and Enfamil, um, 
were ethical marketers and they did not, I don't, they did have um, pretty robust um, presences um, in third world countries, but they didn't get in, in trouble. They weren't faced with the boycotts that, um, uh, that Nestle was. And this could have been a conspiracy. Nestle has sued the two for um, sort of conspiring to, um, to, to, you know, to, throw them out of the, the cabal. Um, not clear. There have been over the years, um, you know, various price fixing um, uh, antitrust suits against the two um, f- uh, formula makers um, in the 80s. You'll see, you know, I was looking up um, the, the history of this um, industry in old newspapers and you would always see, you know, Enfamil like on the um, in the grocery store circulars at the time. Enfamil would be like a penny more expensive or a penny less expensive than Similac. So there was a lot of coordination going on between these two companies. They um, did a lot to kind of keep the, you know, keep others, keep interlopers out of the business. Um, And because it was a, because they had these networks, these ethical um, marketing networks with hospitals and, and um, pediatricians, that's who you, you know, that's, that's the formula that you got sent home with, um, with, you know, uh, with your child, with your baby. And, and I found as a mom myself, like, um, I, you know, mostly breastfed my kids for the first few months, but the, you know, by far my, um, my baby, when I needed, um, my, my first son, when I needed, you know, a supplement. Um, he wanted the thing, the Enfamil that he went home from the hospital with. So I think that that is also like the fact that like babies are extremely finicky and um, loyal customers. I think that also plays into this here. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that the the business is relatively high margin. Certainly um, baby formula is more expensive here than it is in, um, uh, in Europe. But the other thing, the other factor here is, of course, this WIC, WIC program. So I'm not exactly sure. WIC um, does uh, consume more than 50% of the volume of, um, of baby formula that is um, consumed in America. So they, they are huge buyers um, and they get a huge discount. Um, but so then what happens in a state-by-state basis, and this is something that um, I my um, colleague Matt Stoller has uh, dug into in the 1990s when um, WIC was um, sort of uh, forming these um, baby formula uh, baby formula contracts um, on a state by state basis. They were encouraged um, to to select single distributor single formula brands um, to. To, to give their entire contracts to um, the idea being that this would make them more efficient. What has happened is that because of these, um, you know, because of that, uh, the, the, the structure of the market there in those states that have single um, uh, brands of, of um, baby formula that they're, they're um, contracting with, you know, that's where the, you know, they can, those, that brand actually absolutely controls the distribution of baby formula in those states. So there's places like, I think that Alaska and Wyoming, um, they have um, very acute shortages now. Um, I think that those are Similac states. Um, the um, Sim- Similac factory in Sturgis was um, shut down by the FDA um, when they found, um, after an inspection found five different strains of um, 
of bacteria in in um, various um, uh, sections of the production facility. Um, but, and what was interesting is that when they um, in the I believe in the consent decree that um, uh, required them to shut down the factory um, and and clean the clean everything up. They also noticed they they also noted that there were leaky roof that the roof was leaking throughout the facility and that there were um, you know huge leaks, which is obviously you know we're talking about drying machines. A leaky roof is a huge freaking problem if you're trying to eliminate um, bacteria from your. Um, uh, your baby formula. So what do you know? Lo and behold, they open back up, they've got everything supposedly fixed. And then there's, um, you know, big storms and parts of the, um, the factory are flooded and they've got to shut it down again. Um, so now they have finally reopened, I think a, a week or so ago. Um, but I mean, this is again, you know, if, if I, I was focused on the problem of the drying machines, but the fact that their roof was leaking is kind of, you know, just like another testament to it's the kind of corner cutting that you see when a company has a kind of government sanctioned monopoly of, or, or duopoly of, of, um, of this sort. So, um, that let is, me ask you, yeah. let me just ask you, so what, what prevents like, so because they have these contracts, you still see in those states that they carry both brands, like both brands, both companies are existing in all of those places. So why is there not an ability for the other brand to sort of compensate? Yeah. yeah. So Enfamil, uh, my theory on this, I mean, it's, a, it is an enormous amount. So you see with, um, it's a similar case with Boeing and Airbus when, um, the 737 MAX, the Boeing 737 MAX was grounded um, for two years, um, I think it was. It was an extraordinarily long time, um, much longer than anyone thought. And until the pandemic happened, um, there's still a whole lot of demand for these jets. Um, and, you know, because of the because they were grounded, because they were unsafe, because of the, um, the flights that happened, um, you know, a lot of airlines, they could get out of their contracts. They could go and give that contract to Airbus, but Airbus did not have, you know, the capacity to, to eat up, you know, all of that. Um, and that's the other thing that's right. so great about having a duopoly. It's almost, it's the same as having a monopoly really. Um, so uh, moving on to, um, to Enfamil. Enfamil is owned by Reckitt, um, Benixer. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, it's a, a UK conglomerate. They make Lysol. Um, they purchased, um, Mead uh, Johnson, the company that makes Enfamil, um, a couple of years ago, it was a very leveraged transaction. So they took on a lot of debt. And at the time, what analysts believed was that they were paying too much and that they were going to be, they wasn't going to be able to, um, to, to, to meet their expectations. But at the time also, um, China had had a, a few tainted formula scares and there was a belief in, um, you know, um, among racket executives that the combination of the end of the one child policy in China and these um, tainted formula scares was going to be a big opportunity for, for racket to sell more expensive formula to, you know, Chinese parents. Um, that didn't end up happening. Um, you know, there was there was no real uptick in the birth rate in China. And as it turns out, they were, there was a lot of competition. There were a lot of Chinese companies wanting to get into this business. And, you know, China has a manages its economy um, to create competition in a lot of cases like that. So um, so they you know, they sold off the Chinese formula business. It was a big disappointment. They tried to write it off and they put their um, their their 
whole formula business on the block earlier this year, actually right before, like the week before the FDA shut down the plant. Reckitt was not interested in investing in this business and getting any more money. They just wanted to get out. And that is part of the problem here, too, is that, you know, these sunset industries that we have, whether it's commercial aviation or baby formula, they're not sexy enough. The the returns, you know, like that, that's there. They don't there's isn't enough um, promise of these massive double digit returns um, for for them to see much investment. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the biggest problem I think is that they weren't, now they have um, supposedly been increasing supply a lot. I do think that they have, um, ramped up production. Um, I think that like, I I think that they are doing my, my sense was they're doing at least 10% more business than they were this time last year, but it's not, you know, they, it's, it's not sufficient. Um, and again, you know, you see with with Abbott, um, if you if you watched how they worked in the um, in the um, rapid test, the rapid COVID test business, um, they're very, um, you know, they in that business they got into a little bit of trouble because as soon last summer, as soon as there was a drop off in, in COVID cases, they shut down the COVID test factory. They had you know, the last thing that they had their, their factory workers do was destroy 8 million COVID tests that, you know, and then what do you know, fall comes along, there's, there's some cases coming up and there's this massive rapid test shortage. Um, so these are companies that are not really interested in, um, they're interested in keeping the price high. They're interested in maintaining their margins. They're not really interested in kind of opportunistic, you know, capturing, um, you know, new business if it's not going to last. They're interested in maintaining their margins and um, not really employing any one more worker than they need to. Um, so that's that's I think that's my basic assessment of the problem. Now, there's also the problem where um, our FDA, um, you know, requirements because of regulatory capture. There are all kinds of things um, about, you know, there are all kinds of um uh, restrictions around what you can put in baby formula and what should be in baby formula and what can't be, um, that, that have, um, prior to this emergency, um, uh, kept European baby, um, uh, European formula makers out of our markets because, you know, and, and, and essentially I think the consensus is that most of these restrictions are, are, complete BS, but I think that they're required to have soy. They're required to have all these random ingredients. Um, again, I don't think that there is, is a whole lot of scientific, um, uh, merit to any of these restrictions, but that regulatory capture is inevitable when you have, uh, that concentrated of an industry. So we could have, let's say hypothetically a president that maybe, I don't know, released those restrictions in a time of crisis and was able to get baby formula from Europe because we do know those restrictions are probably bogus because why is it okay for European babies then? Why why is there not like this huge rash of European babies like being all misfigured and all deformed if there's something so wrong with their formula? Oh like, <laughs> I mean, it's funny, you know, and part of it I think also um, probably has to do with the fact that um, – you know, I, I think that like, because my, um, my sister-in-law, my, um, my brother, um, lives in, in 
Germany. Um, they had their um, children in, in Vienna and she had a, a trouble with her first child um, nursing. And, you know, they, there was not nearly the, um, the sort of the judgmentalism that they, that exists in America, like around for whatever reason, around like how you're supposed to breastfeed your children. I mean, breastfeeding is really like, I don't like La Leche League, the La Leche League nuts. No, I mean, it is this, it is really strange and like very, the, the way that we kind of approach, like, it's so funny, like, like the, um, I, I like there's a weird like schizophrenia around, you know, the way that we think of like, you know, our abortion as as being kind of, you know, I think most women think about abortion as being, um, you know, settled at like a, a, you know, human right for women. But then if you do have a child, if you actually chose to choose to go in that direction, then there's just like this incredible expectation that, and, and breastfeeding is just, it's just an enormous sacrifice. Um, and, um, and it's not you're just to, being selfish. Yeah. You're just being selfish. It's your crazy. Is donate your body to your child. And when my, um, when my sister-in-law had her child, she had this problem where she just, you know, she had morning sickness the entire pregnancy and she gained like seven pounds and she had a 10 pound child. And the nurse told her, you know, this is, or no, it was a midwife who told her, you know, you like, you've done your work. You cannot let him get any more of you. Like you absolutely have to, like, I'm not going to let you try and breastfeed this child. You have to work on come, you know, restoring your own health. And that's just not the way that we are. So I think that like, you know, we, another thing that's kind of, um, sort of kept this industry down is that it's considered to be like a blue collar thing. And I was waiting tables, um, throughout, you know, when my babies were, um, of, of that age of, um, not a food consuming age. And, oh my God, if you think that like, you know, breast pumping is a pain in a normal life, um, waiting tables and breast pumping is, the worst. <laughs> so it's, um, that's a, I think a, like another thing that really kind of, um, hinders the, 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 the use, but yeah, the, the, the Biden administration's re- response to this was just very like everything in, you know, associated with this white house was just very slow. Um, the FDA received this whistleblower report and it was, a really devastating um, and very, very comprehensive report um, detailing, you know, huge systemic failures within the plant. And that report was sent to the FDA in September of 29, of 2021. And for whatever reason, it wasn't really read by anyone um, with any power in the agency until around January. And they send something out, somebody out in February. So there was a lot of time during which, you know, they could have um, followed up and they did, they did conduct an inspection in, in um, September. So this was, you know, this was their follow-up. The the February was their follow-up inspection, but for whatever reason, there was no connection between the whistleblower report um, and the September inspection, like those things like did not cross paths somehow. Um, in the same whistleblower had been trying to, um, to alert the, the, the government for, I, I think for over a year, they started with OSHA and with OSHA, there's, it's a little bit more understandable because, um, OSHA has got a lot of a huge backlog of cases 
um, that they, you know, pertaining to COVID safety um, in, in workplaces. I mean, there's like, I, I know that, that OSHA's been, been completely overwhelmed and it was extremely um, neglected under the Trump administration. But yes, I mean, it, there's no, there, there isn't really an excuse for the Biden administration to have um, responded so slowly and kind of so um, without seeming to kind of comprehend the, the, um, the ramifications of, of this, of, of this act. But I mean, like, this is the Biden administration that we're talking about. They haven't, you know, it's, this is sort of across the board, what you've seen, whether it's been in abortion or student loans or, um, is, is a real deer in the headlightsness generally, um, uh, how, much, uh, how much responsibility do you put a Buddha judge's feet? Um, pardon me. How much responsibility do you put a Buddha judge's feet? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, you I know, know, I mean, I know he's just there filling a position. You know, they accused the Trump administration of putting people that were completely unqualified in positions of power and. Yeah. I mean, yes, a joke, but uh, it obviously, you know, it, it bears discussion uh, because he is the uh, secretary of transportation. And, and this uh, especially when he the, does have a new baby who okay. is presumably not being breastfed. Right. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, 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 well, we're I don't not, know. Who's, I mean, I'm just saying I don't know if that's like unwoke of me to, to assume. No, um, if there's two men, they can't be breastfeeding. Yes. I'm, I, yeah. I, mean, I don't care how woke you are. There's certain things that are just <laughs> biology, man. Like, I know. Like, I, I, I agree. And I'm convinced you know, that half the, half the woke discussions are just to distract people from the economic crisis that we've been living through for years. I think 100% of the woke discussions are to distract people from like, economics. Um, no, I think it's very like, but, but with, yeah, but with Buttigieg, so the, the things that apparently, um, he was very proud of their initial plan to bring in, to, to, to fly in formula. And they've flown in. I, I just love the metrics they use. They've flown in so far 55 million eight ounce bottles worth of formula, which is, you know, like not a real thing. Like it's so apparently we go through 60 million eight ounce bottles of formula um, a week in America. So that's actually not um, that great considering this is like, you know, at least a 12 12 or 14 week crisis that we've been in the throes of. Um, but that's how they're counting. And he, his initial plan involved um, uh, using uh, contracting FedEx, I believe to, um, to fly in these, um, you know, this baby formula. And then somebody said, you know what, like maybe we don't have to fly and maybe we have military plans for this purpose. And indeed not to bring up Boeing again, but, Boeing um, has is is has been contracted to to create the next generation of uh, aerial refueling tankers, and um, they've delivered a few of these things, but they have no chance of ever refueling um, a fighter jet in the air because of the poor design that they kind of refuse to accept. And this is sort of like one of these like low key Boeing scandals that you don't hear about because there's so many others. Um, but in the meantime, the Air Force has been forced to use these uh, massive aerial refueling tankers that don't actually work um, as uh, as cargo jets. Now, why they aren't just using those and 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 ferrying in um, you know uh, formula from Europe 
is beyond me. I don't know how much your uh, ex- excess formula Europe is really um, producing right now, but it is something that, you know, it, it sort of made me because there's another thing where um, another Buttigieg item um, is um, involves the practice of um, airlines, the increasing practice of airlines these days um, of charging families extra to sit together. Um, and this is, uh, I think that this is actually illegal. And I think that the, the FAA has said something about it and promised to find um, airlines that do it, but they haven't yet. And again, this is another thing, you know, Pete Buttigieg, you know, I'm really glad that you were able to go on paternity leave, unlike my husband, who's a chef, um, and took like nine days. Um, but um, uh, why can't you just get your, you know, like, why can't you get your act together and and lay down the law for the airlines? Um, it's this is because, because there is a major because there's st- and this is the the problem is, is that the Democratic Party um talking heads, uh, the people who lead the party, not necessarily the ones who want to vote on the issues that matter the most, but the people who are given air, like something is ridiculous. I I have seen some, this administration is heading for historically uh, uh, negative proportions in terms of their their standing. Uh, Trump and DeSantis are literally knocking at the door already, and they're not even two years into this administration. The fact that they had Deborah Messing at the White House as some type of a consultant of some sort that they right. thought was relevance. And she's right? saying, you know, you guys are freaking incompetent. Like she's the she's right, only yes. say, she is only saying that because she is the embodiment of the most privileged type of white suburbanite or urban city dweller who has no worries in the world whatsoever. And they finally touched an issue that bothers her, which is a woman's right to an abortion. She doesn't give a damn about anything regarding working class economics, not one iota whatsoever. But in her circumstance, it's it's different because now you're kind of skirting a territory where very comfortable liberals think that they are immune to ever being touched on stuff that matters. This is why they make jokes about, you know, go read to blind kids and things like that, because this is their world. Their world is I control the Democratic Party. I'm the one, as she said, I'm the one who got Joe Biden elected. They really believe this. And so as a result of that, now they're trying to sort of. That was an incredible statement. Yeah, well, well, nothing is incredible from her. She thinks uh, Susan Sarandon is the uh, is the ills of all the problems in the world. I personally think it just has to do with the fact that she's jealous that Susan is a superior actress than she is. But I digress. Um, There there really is a a multitude of layers as to why we are here. But the biggest one of them all, bar none, is the fact that corporate special interests have captured our government like this is not. Yeah, this is not like uh, everyone's looking for like a Rorschach test as to what the real issue is here. No, Pete Buttigieg and even our president are completely captured by corporate special interests. Buttigieg does nothing with the baby baby formula shortage or the airline industry catastrophe or the train catastrophe that's going on right now right off by corporate interest and i was very yeah i i was trying to look i was trying to look into that before um we started because i wanted to see who's on the arbitration panel because the railroads were cheering this panel and i thought for for crying out loud you know they've they've axed uh 33 of the workforce in the past like five years um you know they're asking for um a cost of living increase 
The audacity as well, the audacity as well of them to try to brag about unemployment numbers when you're not calculating how many people are actually working multiple part time jobs, how many people have stopped looking for work. And the fact that we do not have universal health care or a living wage. So they purposely put them in a situation where you're not actually able to live a comfortable life. We do not have that in our country. And this is emblematic. The baby formula crisis is emblematic of where yeah. things are. And I think the best place for us to close real quick is what is the status? How is this ultimately going to conclude? Are we anywhere near a solution to this problem? Mm, I mean, uh, to the baby formula shortage problem, I think that we're probably, I mean, but it really depends on if the, the roof has been fixed and if the individual regulators in question are serious. And if, if the, if the, you know, if, if, the, the people on the ground and, and if Abbott has been, th- I don't think that Abbott has been, um, you know, sufficiently shamed. Um, you know, they still have, an, they, they still have an enormously profitable business and it, this hasn't cut into that at all. Um, but, you know, it's, I, and, and they, you know, they reopened the factory with a leaky roof. So it really depends. Um, it, but I think that, like, you know, there are certainly way more crises to come. And it's interesting that you bring up abortion. I've done a lot of work on the um, the supply chain um, regarding the various abortion pills and Plan B. And um, and the same, um, you know, they are completely concentrated. You know, there's there's, you know, one or two makers of all of these um, major um, drugs and that and that happened, you know, by design, right? Um, but it is one of those things that kind of makes you think. Because I thought about this for a long time. I've always wondered why abortion was such a um, was you know something that like democratic activists, the democratic establishment, had such laser like focus on. When um, Tucker Carlson is spreading ideas that you know there's some great replacement idea, um, it, you know that there's some great replacement theory that's driving. Um, you know, our electoral strategy in, in the Democratic Party. And you think, well, no, it's actually like the opposite, because the Democratic Party's like, you know, like total focus. And the only thing that it's actually sort of, you know, sort of tried to, to work on is, 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 is preserving a woman's right to not reproduce. And, um, the you know, for the rest of us, for people who actually have reproduced, uh, for people who have families, um, and, and have to, you know, to feed them, um, they really haven't shown that much interest in, 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 in helping them. And, and that's, you know, why they're, they're, you know, uh, their fate, this midterm election looks, uh, so scary. Um, uh, Yeah. And the best place to close, quite frankly, you know, everyone's like, oh, they're trying really hard. If they actually care, this is very much like the GOP. If they cared at all, which they don't, because this is all about corporate special interests, um, they would have extended the child tax credit. They would have done something about paid family leave. They did nothing. And so everyone who's still saying, oh, we've got to protect Joe. No, we don't. Actually, Joe needs to be primary. And I think he will. So with that said, Mo, it's been a real pleasure having you. That's the best thing I've heard all day. Oh, thank you. If there's anything that you want to plug before you go, anything that you're working on right now, how anybody can follow your work, the floor is yours. 
Um, uh, you can, uh, you can follow my very sporadically updated Twitter, uh, feed Motasic, M-O-E-T-K-A-C-I-K. Um, I've got a, um, video up on, at More Perfect Union. If you want to look at the, um, that's where I've, um, talked a little bit more about, um, this, uh, formula crisis. And I'm also in a, um, Netflix documentary right now about Abercrombie and Fitch, um, if anybody wants to collect. <laughs> I have a feeling it's probably not good in terms of what they've been up to. So I, I mean, no, that it's it's not good at all. If there's uh, anything that I could say just from my personal experiences remembering Abercrombie and Fitch from growing up, if if that is not the embodiment of a store that clearly gets all of their supplies from sweatshops, I don't know what is. It is uh, it is and it's probably, I'm sure, in this documentary. It probably documents it very well. There's a lot to document. Look, the documentary only scratches the surface. I'm I'm I'm, I'm in talks now to to do a sequel <laughs> because there's so much more there. But um, that's for another time. Um, really great talking to you. Thank you so Again. much for what you do. Seriously, thank you yeah. so much for what you do. It's very appreciated because this is the kind of stuff that I suspect is going on. But I don't have the wherewithal time and resources to really investigate every single one. And I'm very dependent on people like you who are doing that work. So I'm very appreciative. Well, thank you so much. And for for what you do. And I was looking up, you know, I was like, is she related to Ron Perlman? Actually, my father-in-law is Ron Perlman, just not that Ron Perlman. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> I know. It's, it's funny. Oh, what a bummer. Yeah, I know. Could use another grant. <laughs> I know. Um, but uh, but no, thank you for what you do and for not being related to that Ron Perlman. Yes. <laughs> My Ron Perlman is actually a really nice guy. So it's, it's all good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much thank for coming you, on. We thank really appreciate you. your work and we'll definitely be in touch. Awesome. Have a great, Have a great day. day. Bye. She was lovely. Yes. Very informative. Obviously has a wealth of information. Oh, share. my God. You know, and again, uh, so much of these problems that we see are easily avoidable. Uh, but why do we not avoid them? It's very simple. Uh, corporate special interests only have their interests. And because they dominate the arena of politics today, they get to do whatever they want to do. And so uh, depending on when Sean gets here, I think it's a good opportunity to really get into the topic of the day, which is, of course, over the weekend. Uh they're trying to revive the Build Back Better plan, which I think just goes to show their level of desperation regarding the midterms and trying to get something out the door. And they're all putting it at the feet of Joe Manchin. Of course. Because it's all about Joe. It's all about that Joe. President Manchin might as well be called at this point. There's never any it, – it's like – Everyone is asleep at the wheel thinking that the president is incapable of twisting arms or going on national TV. I just don't understand. Saying, yeah, this is what you're missing. Uh, and if you don't get it, how about so? So, so here's here's a thought. This just a thought. If, in fact, we're in a situation right now where. Let's say you have a, a Senate race that is tight, uh, could be, you know, could be a, a GOP senator that is in trouble. Uh, let's just say Mike Lee, you know, as conservative. Well, Sean as says he's in the Google Meet. No, you need to get the StreamYard link. Get the screen. Get the. Hey, did you send him the StreamYard yes, link? Of course I did. Okay. Of course I did. So anyway, uh, 
You know, when I'm doing this, it's kind of you kind of throw me off, man. Text I'm me next sorry. time. So anyway. Here's my thing. If the president is so be all powerful that we all have to think this is the most important election of our lifetime, which, by the way, shout out to Status Coup for that really good compilation of people. Uh, it's the most important election of our lifetime yeah. for the last 20 was, years. If you guys haven't seen it, it's really funny. But anyway, like if the president is so be all powerful that we that that Trump was so powerful and so able to destroy this country, then why can't this president do anything? Well, it's pretty like, simple. That's the thing. Where's the, why? <laughs> it's the same thing with with uh, abortion. Uh, it's a fundraising goldmine, and that's all that matters to them. They're not concerned about whether or not that is the case. When I was in New Hampshire and I had to listen to Marty Walsh, yeah, that mayor of Boston who was electioneering with Bill Clinton in my brother's neighborhood, which is illegal, and they did it during the 2016 primary in Massachusetts, and everyone knew that they were doing it all day and preventing Bernie voters from getting in there and telling people how to vote. Yeah, that's a crime, and they got away with that in many places. Just wanted to put that out there. But anyway. But isn't, that what they're, isn't that what they're doing, pretending to be the Green Party? No, no. In this case, Marty Walsh was there basically telling the crowd in New Hampshire that every election is the most important election of your life. Oh, right. No, I just meant in terms of cheating and electioneering and going behind people, like not playing fair. With their with their campaign strategy. Why play fair when you can scare the hell out of everybody into thinking that every election is the last one of your life if you don't do something about it? Because the truth is. Uh, oh, did Bo did yeah. a good video on that, too. I'll have to say I, I, I can't imagine I missed a Bo video. You know, the truth of the matter is, and I would tell anybody this, if you really want to talk about the most important election of our of our lifetime or anyone that has happened in recent memory, it was the 2000 election in which 300,000 registered Democrats voted for George Bush in Florida. Now, if only 200,000 of them voted for him, Gore would have been president and it wouldn't have mattered whether or not a bunch of Jews in Palm Beach and Broward County voted for Pat Buchanan because it would have been irrelevant. You know, here we are today looking back on what actually happened at that time, and it's completely nonsensical. Everyone points the finger at Ralph Nader and says that he's the reason why we got George Bush. And we got, you know, it's funny, Jen. And I just thought about this. You know, everyone wants to talk about how so many people didn't vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And that's how Donald Trump got to the White House. And that's how we got Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. Does anybody think about how we ultimately ended up with Justice Alito or Justice Roberts? You know those guys were nominated by George W. Bush, right? Because that's how they got there. And had it not been for the 300,000 Democrats here in Florida, who knows who would have been on the Supreme Court over the course of 2001 to 2009. But that doesn't get talked about because it's an inconvenient truth because you only follow what you want to follow. This was never a discussion when Bush was president, ever. But it's a discussion now. Because somebody like Donald Trump got to the White House and started blowing the gasket on everything that's going on. Now, of course, with Trump, he doesn't give a damn about anybody but himself. He is as narcissistic and self-indulgent as anyone who's ever served this country. But every once in a while, he would say something that was very true about how our country operates. And they mm -hmm. do not want that. So everything is about what was me, Hillary Clinton, and how this ultimately came about. And everything is about those three Supreme Court justices who are there now and are doing the bidding of the Heritage Foundation and everybody else. But no one wants to talk about how Roberts and Alito are on that judiciary.
If you ask me. Yet, yet, and while I remember all of these confirmations, um, I never felt that those two weren't qualified. See, see, that's that's where we've gone really askew here with the level of jurisprudence that Gorsuch, we now Gorsuch, Gorsuch is qualified, but Kavanaugh and Barrett are not under any I, as bad really, as any it's decision. Embarrassing. Well, yeah. But, oh, Amy, oh, Amy, oh. Amy Coney Island can't even name the, the protected freedoms in the First Amendment. Right. This should concern people. And this is where I think the conversation really where the rubber meets the road. Because, again, remember, it's not about giving you anything that you need. It's about scaring you into thinking you're going to get something you don't want or don't need. And that's all politics has been about, because in in the entire time that you're being convinced that nothing can be done. And remember, President Biden, for example, has the executive authority to declare a climate emergency and start building a clean energy grid at warp speed, very much like FDR did after the attack on Pearl Harbor. It took only a couple of years but they built up a war machine strong enough that they could invade Normandy and defeat the Nazis, which was considered an impossible task after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Well, you know what? FDR said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. He declared a national emergency. We have to build a robust army, which they did in 1942 and 1943. And we were in that war and we were fighting. We have a president that can't even get baby formula to the babies. Correct. And for anybody out there who's already, you see, the chirps are already getting out there about the fact that Biden is very likely going to be primaried. And there are people who are coming out saying, no, no, you can't primary a president. You can do whatever the hell you want. And any moron today opening their stupid mouth about what is and isn't possible right now is a goddamn moron. Because- well, I'm very disappointed about Ro Khanna, That's for sure. You know, I mean, he's always sort of been a, like on the one hand, he is the one person that does talk to independent media. But then on the other hand, he preemptively supports Joe Biden before even knowing that he's running. Listen, the it's really. And there's no way to get around the fact that his wife. Is invested in the fossil fuel industry, in uh, banking. It's, again, nice guy, votes fairly well on most things, but he's enriching himself. No backbone. No backbone. But he's enriching himself. Ro, we like you, man. We've had you. But there, there is a total denial here about the way the system is incredibly broken. And as Mo detailed, there are things that can be done, but are not being done. And it isn't because of a lack of will. Everyone thinks that this, if they only had the will to do it. No, it's because corporate special interests have captured our government. That's where it begins. That's where it ends. So without further ado, we are very pleased to welcome a actual conservative who isn't interested in corporate special interest money. Imagine that. Having no, a we always talk about that. People are like, you only have on Democrats. You only talk about Democrats. Um, no, I'll platform anybody who's non-corporate and wants to represent their people, their constituents. So that is what we have. That is correct. So without further ado, Sean Hartman, welcome to Generational Change. Thank you. I, I was just very much enjoying that conversation. I was like, you guys can just keep going as long as you want. That was so much fun. But you're, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's something that, um, that I think we all, we all can agree on is, is that we kind of want the corporations out of the politics. Politics is supposed to be about the people and serving the people. So 
proper introduction by the way peter so sean is running sean is running for city council i was i was so i actually was uh districted out of my district unfortunately oh. so back in april but i was running uh for city council and i was running for a lot of reasons i really didn't feel like the um that the city council as a whole was really serving the people we were having a big issue with waste pro our waste management company not delivering on their services. Um, that is something that is still going on and has been going on pre-COVID, uh, but um, there hasn't been any real action on it. The, but one of the main reasons I was intending on running and really making an issue, which unfortunately now that I'm not running has not been made an issue, is that back in December of last year, or last Christmas, when no one was paying attention, they passed an economic incentive plan that was about two and a half million dollars that they're basically going to use to bribe businesses to come into Cape Coral. So this is our taxpayer money. First off, all our, our taxes, one of the other reasons I was running is as a conservative, I don't believe in high taxes. So I was running because the property taxes have gone up. We uh, eliminated a, um, I think it was 500 kilowatts per hour in the utility electric bill tax to fund the charter schools. So we were increasing taxes on everyday residents, average residents. And they passed this to basically give them our tax dollars. And then later on, they passed a charter amendment that's going to be going to the voters that I will be pushing to make sure that people vote no, but it will be a tax exemption for those businesses. So they're getting our tax money. They're not paying taxes out of it. And the everyday resident is paying more taxes. So that was one of the main reasons why I was running and why we were initially discussing uh, me being on the show, but unfortunately, I was moved slightly out of the district. I'm like one canal away, um, but I am still active. I run Cape Coral Council Watch, where I report on what the city council is doing, what the candidates are doing. I'm covering the elections. I'm now covering the county commission as well. I just started um, a couple weeks ago, but then they went on their summer hiatus. Um, but that's what I'm still doing, and my main focus now is keeping people informed, keeping Cape Coral informed of what their government is, is doing and what their elected officials are doing. And one of them, of course, will be a part of the charter amendments that they pass that'll try to basically give private industry and private businesses tax breaks. For somebody who supports our governor, I would like to hear from your perspective what you think he has done well and perhaps things that you think he hasn't done well. So he's definitely been a big fighter for freedom. Um, I, I think broadly speaking, um, that that's where his strengths are. Keeping our economy open and, and reopening our economies um, during COVID, I think was a major aspect as well. I support a lot of the things that probably your audience wouldn't support. For example, I do support the parents' rights and education bill. Um, I did support... Um, the Stop Woke Act, but my biggest issue with both of those bills and a lot of these legislations that we get in Tallahassee is that Republicans in Tallahassee seem not to be aware of the law of unintended consequences. And you see a lot of this with the pro-life bill, you see it with the parents' rights and education bill where you have gay teachers and, and teachers in the LGBTQ plus community who can't have to take down photos of their relationships and whether you like it or not, that's a form of discrimination. They're receiving a discriminatory action against them because of the language of this bill. I think it could have been tightened. I think 
I believe it was the Stop Woke Act where um, uh, it wasn't Joe Gruder's. It was another state senator, a more libertarian state senator, wanted to amend the language. Um, oh, no, it was the Parents' Rights and Education Bill where he wanted to amend the language on what they were talking about to really focus on sexually appropriate, you know, because that's where I see it as it's, it's what's age appropriate for children and when is it appropriate to teach them about these type of things. The problem is, is again, we have unintended consequences when we pass these bills and it does come out a bit showmany. And that's where I do think, not just necessarily with Ron DeSantis, but really with my Republican party, it's become performative. It's not about substance. It's not about actually getting tangible things done for the American people or for the people of my community, quite frankly. I think that that's a very good point. Um... But I also think that both sides uh, do everything in their capacity not to talk about economic issues. We have a oh, massive, massive housing crisis problem in this state. It is very, very expensive to be here. Of course, one of the reasons that that happens um, in many instances is, again, alluding to uh, trying to overly commercialize Cape Coral. It's the same deal with uh, Orlando, Tampa. Uh, then, of course, you move up the coastline to you know, places like Titusville. And then, of course, you go to, uh, you know, Daytona and Jacksonville. And, and obviously down here, it goes without saying just how overpopulated we have become. Uh, people are finding their way into Florida every day uh, by, you know, the masses, if you will. So that is understandable. But there is still something to be said for the fact that there is no rent control, which is a huge problem. The GOP has no interest in this issue whatsoever. And the Democrats who are fighting on it I mean, I'm not in Tallahassee. We're very friendly with a number of elected representatives. But there isn't anything that I've heard as far as, you know, doing some type of a bipartisan bill to try to deal with some type of, an, you know, an effort there. Florida is a county strong state, so there's a lot of things at the county level that could be done. But, you know, there's always somebody who wants to make a buck. And this really yeah. is the wild, wild west in Florida. So what is your thoughts on perhaps some of the more progressive issues that tends to be much more economic based, not social justice based? Right. But I think a lot of times people can Populism. find some common ground on. Yeah. I'm actually very glad you brought that up. So in the three, four months that I was running, that was what everyone was talking to me about. So I was doing a lot of research um, because I am a free market guy. In my opinion, when you're a landlord, you know, you're investing in that property and you have a reasonable expectation for a good return on investment. I think that's fair. But at the same time, the people who are renting are working class people and here in Cape Coral, a lot of senior citizens. So you can really only make a return on investment based on how much money they're making. So that's where I have um, really leaned more towards, I don't want to say rent control, but definitely rent stabilization. Um, I had spoken to my state representative, Mike Giolombardo, about it. He gave me the, the market fundamentalist approach. We need less government, not more, free markets. But I have actually, when I was watching a live stream of Anna Eskamani, she brought up a way to uh, uh, do a housing emergency to have rent stabilization for a year. I am actually in contact with the councilwoman I was going to run against because this has been a big issue for her homelessness and the housing crisis. Um, and I've been in communication with her and a few other council members about this and at Eskamani's office about this. In my opinion, when we talk about conservatism, ironically, uh, Pat Buchanan had the best quote about it. We need a conservatism of the heart, not a conservatism of the boardroom. 
And we really need to focus on what we're trying to conserve, which is families and individuals and their livelihoods, especially down here in Cape Coral. People want to live here in Cape Coral and be a part of the community here. So in my opinion, when I think about this as a conservative, I want to conserve their ability to live here. So I am perfectly okay with um, some regulations, just as long as they aren't out of control. And we do also have to think about the unintended consequences there of rent controls and rent stabilization, which have happened, which um, have led to less development and less building. Though I don't think that would be a big issue for Cape Coral because one of the other issues that we're having because of all the people moving in is we don't have the infrastructure to handle the people coming in. We have been 10, 20 years too late on a lot of things. We're just now fixing, um, adding a lane to the main bridge into Cape Coral, the Cape Coral Bridge. We have a metropolitan planning organization, and this is one of the big issues that's being brought up on the campaign now. Um, we have five members, city council members, who are supposed to show up, but only two show up. So we need widening of roads, we need expansions, and our city council members aren't showing up to get us the money that we deserve, that is our money, to basically take care of this influx of people coming in. So there is a part of me when I was running where I wanted to take a position of stopping residential development until we can get the infrastructure to take it on. I think that's a bit of a radical approach, but I think when we're talking about conserving a community, um, it's something that, that, at least for Cape Coral, we need to start considering. We need to have the infrastructure before we have more people coming in. It's so funny you say, I've said this before and I do, I think it's very radical, but I really think that in a lot of places there absolutely needs to be a moratorium on non-essential development. Um, Anything that isn't to service that community that would be part of the infrastructure, I agree. And I know that that is considered radical, but I think we are in a very desperate time. We are going to be running out of drinking water. I feel like... I feel like Jennifer Lawrence and don't look up like about the drinking water thing. Like they can keep building, but we're not going to have enough drinking water for these people. So I do think you're right. And I do feel like maybe I'm conservative on this, but we need to conserve. Um, And I agree. We should not be adding until our infrastructure can manage where we are now. We have, we have an entire community. All North Cape Coral is still on um, well systems. They don't even have, there's have a utilities expansion plan that isn't going to co- be completed, completely completed until 2040. So, and we still have people moving in into North Cape Coral. And so we're just like, we, we, and that's the problem is we have all these visions for what we want, but we don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the people showing up to fight for the infrastructure. And it is to the point, in my opinion, that we, in order to protect our community and conserve what we have here in Cape Coral, We have to think about not necessarily a moratorium, but reducing residential development, commercial development. That's a different story with us because we're a pre-platted community. 93% of us is residential already. So we do need more commercial development to sustain, you know, people who move here working here. You know, you know, we need we need people to have businesses and, and jobs and opportunities here instead of people going across the bridge into Fort Myers every time they need to go to work and then paying a $3, $2, $3 toll every time they come back. So, And, and we saw, um, and we, and I've seen this in uh, downtown Fort Lauderdale in a number of places is um, they're, they're building, I, I guess it's like a combination of uh, 
commercial residential. Yep. Uh, Live and work. Live, play, and work. Yeah. The, the Cove on 47th is going to be the big one that they're promoting. By the way, and I know I told you this, Jen, our city manager, Rob Hernandez, who is the deputy city manager of Fort Lauderdale. So that's so he is very much, and I am seeing it at how he's developing it, us like Fort Lauderdale. He said at our Catch the Vision, we have our Cape Coral Chamber of Commerce. Mind you, great organization, not bashing Cape Coral Chamber of Commerce or Catch the Vision. But when he was there at Catch the Vision, he said very specifically something that as a conservative really freaked me out, which was government is going to be investing in business, which is something you think about as a conservative, that's not the role of government. It's not, it's not the proper role of government. It's, it's, it's government giving in to special interests. It's government giving in to people who already have. Meanwhile, we have residents whose rents are going up a third to a half. Probably, you know, I, had a, I was speaking to a single mother on an Uber when I was running, when talking about this and saying that, you know, her, her rent gone up like $600 and she doesn't know what she's going to do. So you have these, these are real things happening in our community, but we're giving money to all these businesses and special interests and corporations to bring them here and to commercialize. And in my opinion, I, I don't know if you've ever been to Cape Coral, please come if you ever get a chance and, and those watching, they're listening as well. It is a lovely community. It is a family friendly community. It is, it is a waterfront community, beautiful, beautiful place. We don't need to bribe people to come to Cape Coral. People are coming to Cape Coral. People want to bring their businesses to Florida, to Cape Coral, to Lee County. So we don't need to give them money to do so. I think you've made some excellent points. And I think that this is really, even in this brief conversation, and knowing that when it comes to a lot of things, whether it's the environment, whether it's healthcare. I tell people all the time, the reason I support universal health care is because I don't want for-profit middlemen who bring no value to the healthcare equation whatsoever in the middle of me and my doctor. I do not need a systemic takeover by the government to run the healthcare system. What I need is the government to act as the single payer. That's it. And that is what universally most people agree with. The environment, uh, I give credit where credit's due. DeSantis has actually done a fairly good job, especially regarding protecting the Everglades. Um, he does not uh, does not appear to be allowing offshore drilling. Hopefully that stands. Um, there's a lot of issues of him. Uh, I got plenty, I can list them, and very little of it would even stand on whether or not they're banning textbooks in the classrooms. Um, it has as much to do with the fact that he is open for business like any other major politician, but he, of course, is running for president. It's just a question of when. Um, but in this yeah, case, yeah, say that I, again. I would say 2028. I think I am. Oh, no, he's running. Now. Oh, no, he's running now. Oh, no, he's running now. 100 percent. And even if he doesn't beat Trump or vice versa, uh, the one thing the GOP is usually good at is uniting. But here's the here's the final question, Sean, which I think is very important to discuss. I think having this conversation about economic populism is something that most people can find common ground on. When we get into the wedge issues of abortion, Second Amendment, LGBTQ rights, that's where we could probably find some common ground. But there's always going to be sticklers who will not allow it to to um, materialize in, in a way that we find solutions. But in this case, whether it is the environment 
living wage, education, um, healthcare, and so on. We can find that common ground, but there is one huge problem within the GOP right now compared to the Democratic side. We do not see a lot of people. I don't know if it's consistent at the local level. Maybe it is. Don't hear enough about it. But the, the GOP does not at all buy into this idea that we have to do away with Citizens United, that we have to do away with corporate special interest money affecting our political system. A lot of libertarians are, are, are of the mind that that needs to be done. They're not loud enough about it as far as I'm concerned. But I'd like to hear your thoughts because to me, corporate special interest capturing our government is the issue of our time. And regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, to me, that really is the issue of the day on the GOP side that isn't getting enough focus that I think could really have a significant difference going forward, especially because there is this era of economic populism that is taking over the GOP. It's just a question of when, you know, like on our side, when we knock out people like Pelosi and Biden, much more on the GOP side when it comes to knocking out people like McConnell and Grassley. That is just another example of of how the evolution is going to happen in that regard. But what are your thoughts as far as corporate special interest money, capturing our government, and hopefully fielding more candidates on the GOP side that do not take it. Um, So first off, I think that's one of the the benefits of Trump and what he did is he brought that economic populist message and really, really took a focus. I even hear it quite a bit from like Steve Bannon and all these these people that are just very anti-corporate special interest. You, you are right, though, in the sense that Citizens United has not been addressed in this conversation. I think it should. I um, I, I would say that probably the biggest, from, from my perspective, from within the Republican Party, the biggest reason why it would be stopped from being addressed is because they would see it as a constitutional issue of free speech, though I would disagree that money is speech. Um it, it, yeah, exactly. It's it's money. Money is money. So and if it was an equal, if it was an equal playing field, yeah. as Andrew Yang has proposed with democracy dollars, I would be totally for that. I would have no problem with that whatsoever. Everybody gets a certain amount, and then you can make that. You know, you want to pile it into one candidate. I don't care as long as it's equal. In this case, there is no equality because I can't compete with Jeff Bezos if yeah. I want my message out there. I would also say probably free airtime as well would, would be another beneficial aspect uh, because worse, you know, people are talking about how they have to raise money, but what are they raising money for? They're raising money to get attention, to get on the media, to get signs, to get banners, to get all these different things. So I would argue that probably a better solution instead of um, giving people money or giving candidates money, because you always run the risk of that money go into a, a radical candidate on either the left or the right that the taxpayers wouldn't have wanted to go to instead offering free media, free media coverage, free ad space, something to that extent. I know you, the United Kingdom does something similar to that. Um, but that would be what I would see as a, as a, as a good short term solution until we can actually address mm-hmm. citizens United in the Supreme court I, I do 100% agree with you. I think that there there is good reason, um, not just constitutionally, but going back into the con- into our founding fathers and what they believed in terms of what they wanted for our country. That they did not want either special interest or foreign interest like this to have this much power. So 
I believe it is it is something that we do need to do to re- that it is that reducing special interest money and money in uh, politics is a good thing and is a beneficial thing. Um, and I, I mean, I will do what I can locally to try to bring it up as an issue. Yeah, I think it's important. And, and I always say, like, I will platform anybody who's not taking special interest, corporate special interest money. Um, and there aren't very many people on the yeah. right. But I got to tell you, Sean, you're a little left. You're quoting Anna Eskamani and you're talking about things that almost resemble publicly financed elections. So I'm just saying, I, oh, you know, yeah. maybe, I think I'm working you over to the left. Well, I think of the quote from Teddy Roosevelt where he says, why is progressivism and why is conservatism go hand in hand? I, I, I'm not against certain progressive policies. Right. Um, as long as they're done right and reasonably and responsibly. I think I, um, where, where I have a lot of my conservatism is on the fiscal side in terms of what our government is spending on. But I'm willing to spend money um, for conserving the family, for conserving things that actually matter. And, and we as a as a Republican Party have sort of, uh, I don't want to say sort of forgotten that, but need to, to be reminded that we're not fighting for corporations, we're fighting for people. And I think that's really what it is at the end of the day. And when we talk about fiscal responsibility and, and limited government and more freedom and more liberty as a Republican Party and as conservatives, that's an aspect of that too. Right. I think you, and again, this is where the rubber meets the road. There is a line within the conservative movement about the idea that you can go too far to the right and get so far as to believing that taxation is theft. And then you can get too far to the left and think that the government is capable of handling everything. So yeah. we we have to be able to find that common ground. And, and that, to me, I think is why these conversations are essential, because we're not as uh, different as people want us to believe that we are. Uh, there are always going to be outliers. There will always be extremists like Anthony Sabatini. Uh, but, you know, that is the, the you know, everyone wants to say that Anthony's, you know, the, the norm. No, he's not. He just happens to be somebody who's very loud and gets a lot of attention. But that's not how everybody is. It's not even close. I agree with some of the things that Anthony believes in. But I agree that we have those sort of performative politicians on the right right now that are really just doing this. To, to be on a reality TV show. Of course. Whereas where I wanted to run, and quite frankly, I don't even want to run anymore um, for anything because of even here locally how dirty it's become. Um, but the reason I wanted to run is because I wanted to serve and I felt that I could do some good and, and address issues that the community needed to be addressed. And that's not happening. Quite frankly, it's not happening on either party. We're not getting Republicans or Democrats out there who are doing it to serve, they're doing it to to make a name for themselves. Self-serve. Yes. That's what they're doing. Absolutely. So thank you so much for coming on today. It, appreciate it. Thank you so much. As always. Absolutely, thank brother. You so much. I appreciate it. You, have a great- thank you. you do the same, brother. And you know, it's it's funny. It's like I was I was just gonna say. What you, you you don't like the fact that Anthony Sabatini's primary goal is to rename Route 27, the oldest road in Florida, the Donald Trump Highway? I mean, who doesn't get excited about that? I think <laughs> it's hilarious. Valuable. You know. Uh, no, I don't think we'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> That'll ruin the show. <laughs> no, 
actually think it would be good because then it would be like, just get it all out, get it all out. And then just let's move on. It's like the scene in, uh, it's like our friend, Justin Long, when he's uh, the character, uh, the, the guy he plays in um, Live Free or Die Hard. Right. And he starts like, oh, I could do this all day, man. I got everything. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's kind of how it is. But once you go down the rabbit hole, it's. Oh, no, uh, I think let's give him five minutes and uh, just say have the floor. Yeah, I, I, I can see that as well. I could definitely see where somebody in very, very red Lee County. OK, <laughs> and let me tell you, I've already discussed this issue, Sean, and I was very behind the group that wants to rename it Bruce Lee County. Yes. And that would be that would be my pick. Let's that would be cool as hell. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> All jokes and everything was already great, but you know, that definitely would uh would be very entertaining. And so no, I definitely agree with what Lahari has said. Uh you know, we obviously we we do not this is really the difference between channels like ours, channels like David Pakman, the Vanguard, um, Ben Dixon. You know, we're more we're more like a channel and we haven't been doing it anywhere near as long. You know, people forget Jamal Charles. Uh, Jamal Thomas has been doing his channel uh, for a very, very long, very time. long time. And his channel is maybe two or three times the size of ours. But he gives a damn about the issues. He cares about the things that we're trying to fight for. And I know this idea of why don't you put in like a catchy headline or something we like do that. that. You know, we do it from time to time. But, you know, when we have uh, if, if all we were to do is to basically do, you know, Mr. Doors version of, you know, or even the Young Turks version of what they do in terms of capturing people's attention all the time and just basically being another form, Jen, as I'm sure you would agree, of like TMZ. You know, we could do that and probably have a big channel, but that's not why you do this. If the reason you're doing it is for self-serving interests and to basically build up a Patreon where you are making, you know, five to $10,000 a month and, and actually being able to live off of the proceeds of what your channel does, okay, fine. Uh, if, if that's your jam, but that's, that's not, you know, we're here to try to make a difference in a positive way. So if you are so inclined, you can go to patreon.com forward slash generational changes for as little as $5 a month. You can become a supporter of our channel. As you guys know, we have really solid content. We also do a lot of really relevant things for the people in the community. Have, I've been doing it for the people in Asheville though, since I've been here. By the way, speaking of which, uh, apparently, Cori Bush is in a pretty competitive primary, from what I understand, and her election is coming up pretty soon. Would love to be able to, you know, throw throw her some money and obviously lend a hand. And maybe she should out. throw us a bone and come on our show. No, I'll ask. I mean, listen, I don't think it's personal. I, I, you know, it's like I'm. Yeah, I mean, come You've on. You've her. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe that would be a good way to help her raise money. You could say that oh, it's going to be. But that's no, actually, we could do that. We could we could invite her on and say this is going to be a fundraiser for your campaign. Any of the money that comes in via super chat or anything like that will go directly to your campaign. And and why do we do that though? Why would we do that? I don't know because she's one of the good reps that we have. And what we do is we invite her to come on as a guest, like anyone else, and she can choose to do that or not do that. And then we'll promote and then, you know, possibly make a donation. That's how this works. 50 50, but we'll fit 50 50. 
I'm just saying, you know, my quid pro quo is very small. I don't, I don't ask for much. You know what I mean? Like the, one of the reasons I like to do this show is to get to talk to people and meet people and do stuff. That's it. That's all I want. So if somebody wants to like, you know, woo me for support, all I want to do is just get certain people on the show. You know what I mean? So yeah, quid pro quo. Well, anyway, patreon.com forward slash generational change, five, 10, $25 a month. We know you want one of Jen's t-shirts. They are a hot commodity. We'll have, uh, you know, here comes the sun. Uh, I've got the purple version, which I personally prefer. We uh, don't have them anymore. Well, we'll have to figure out how to, well, if people start requesting them and, and signing up, and if we had a Patreon that was giving us 500 to 1,000 bucks a month, then we could afford to get some more of these shirts and give them <laughs> a giveaway. True. Nice. Uh, but as of right now, that is not the case. Um, we're hand to mouth. We are, but we're very happy to help. And we have some important elections coming up. We're going to lend a hand locally. Um, you know, right now with the way things are, the, the, the way things are tracking here in Florida, the best bet you've got is to help as many local candidates as you can. That's your best bet. What do we have coming up? Wednesday is going to be another 12 o'clock start time. We will have our good friend, Mona Lisa Weber. Uh, Jen, please share what Mo is up to. Mo is very, very busy these days, but her, her main project that she's working on right now is she is starting a channel. She's starting a podcast, a show, and it's really geared towards helping the people in her community. And that's black people and predominantly black children and basically teaching people how to best deal with the system that they're stuck in and telling people like different things they can do to sort of claim power in their communities. So it's really cool what she's working on. And she, you know, she's just a fighter, you know, I love Lisa Mo. So she's going to come on Wednesday and talk to us about like what this project that she's working on. And I know she's also writing a book like this, almost like a handbook to people in the hood, how to deal with things that are legal and justice system stuff. Um, And yeah, just trying to educate her people is what she says. She is a badass to say the least. And we'll also have on, finally going to have on Brent Welder, who ran for U.S. Congress in Kansas. What the hell is wrong with Kansas? Well, a lot of things. So we'll have a very nice conversation with him. Um, He was the brunt of some very unnecessary targeting just a few months ago by the Democratic establishment, which is, of course, ridiculous. But, you know, as as, a yes friend of ours, Tim Pool, likes to say, get woke, stay woke, go broke. And the last thing I'll mention before we go, you know, that complete jackass Alex Stein, who was harassing um, AOC the other day. Yeah, this guy comes from extreme privilege and wealth in the northern suburbs of Dallas. Um, there's like a layer of to his story, but the reality is he's just another guy looking for clout, and he got it because AOC decided to indulge him. And, you know, word to the wise to Alex, don't even give them air. Like, that's really the point. Don't give them air. If you give them air, you're also giving them a bigger platform and more money. So that's ultimately what's up happening there. But what was very interesting is I was listening to this clip that Tim did with him the other day, because, of course, Tim naturally would have him come on the show after he did something like this, since Tim is so close to D.C. Uh, they had a very lengthy conversation about universal health care and how they support it. And I just thought. This is the conversation we need to be having. 
Don't worry about the fact that he's a douchebag. Let him be a douchebag, because guess what? If we have universal health care, every douchebag Tom, Dick and Harry in this country gets to have health care, whether you like it or not. And I do think there's a lot of people who are under this pretense of, well, I don't like those people. I don't want them to have health care. So no universal health care. B.S. No health care for you. That exactly. No health care for you. No health care for you. Come back one year. That's very good. Very, very good. And again, uh, I do think that 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 conversation is a conversation that everybody should be listening to. They get into the conversation about the fact that we have for-profit hospitals and that calling calling an ambulance can cost you thousands and thousands of dollars for a quick trip to the the hospital, which is amazing. Again, crooked system needs to be dismantled and we're doing everything we can. We need to find ways to get along, go along to get along, because I know people have a hard time grasping that concept, but it is necessary. And I think the conversations we had today were very productive. I think we had a decent crowd, all things considered, even though there weren't any big names and appreciate everyone in the chat, even the ones we don't agree with necessarily, but we're glad that you're here. If you can become a patron, please get over to patreon.com forward slash generational change one more time. We appreciate your support. We hope you all enjoyed it and we will see you Wednesday at 12. Bye all. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.